Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Good morning, everyone. Hey, welcome along to Gateway this morning. If you happen to be visiting with us, we extend to you a really, really warm welcome. Um, If you're a regular, uh, you'll know that we have been doing a series together over the last few weeks called Small Groups That Change the World. Um, This is part five in that series. Um, We are looking at what we call creative minorities. A creative minority is a small group, Margaret Mead talked about it, a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens who bring about change within a... We're looking at that from a Christian perspective. So we're thinking about small groups of Christians that acted as a redeeming force within a larger dominant culture. Uh, We've used Daniel and his friends in Babylon and uh, the Clapham Circle and the Moravians as historical examples of what creative minorities might look like. Of course, they're not the only creative minorities we might have looked at, but they're the ones that we've probably highlighted as we've gone through the series. In the last two messages, I've been talking about the common denominators of creative minorities, and we've talked about the fact that they are committed to a particular narrative, and then secondly, they are covenantal communities. I won't take time to go back over the material. It's on podcasts, so you can check it out if you wish to. In this message, I want to look at two more characteristics of creative minorities. First of all, that they live under a distinct sense of authority and that secondly, they are ethical communities. So the first one of those two, they live under a distinct sense of authority. Now, as I unpack this, you'll see that there is a significant degree of overlap in these common denominators. And in this case, the fact that they live under a distinct sense of authority is very, very much linked with the the commitment to a, a particular narrative. When, when you step into a particular narrative, when you step into a worldview or story, it becomes an incredibly powerfully uh, shaping influence in your life. Alastair McIntyre in his book, uh, After Virtue, says, I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story do I find myself in? <clears throat> So the stork exercises authority in and over us. It holds a formative, authoritative power. Since we all live in some kind of story, either chosen or by default, it, it follows then that all of us live offering ourselves to some authority. Now, you, you might be thinking, well, not me. I'm under nobody's authority. Nobody tells me what to do. I call my own shots. Well, there's a story behind that, of course, and it's the story of radical, expressive individualism. And in that story, the authority is you. You are the sovereign over all that you survey. You trust your own personal narrative as being authoritative. You march to the beat of your own drum. And of course, that's very, very true in our particular culture. Radical, expressive individualism puts the authority within your grasp. Um, that, that individualism, by the way, has created a massive generational shift in terms of the source of authority in our culture. You know, as recently as my parents' generation, there was a very strong trust in tradition, 
There was a strong trust in institutions and in people who were in power when it came to the question of authority. In 1959, over 75% of people surveyed trusted their government to do the right thing most of the time. In our day, that's dropped way below 17% and is trending downwards at a steady rate. And I would suspect that those figures would be true for whatever institution you cared to name, whether it be media, whether it be the church, whether it be law enforcement agencies or educational institutes. Our culture is characterized by a very powerful force of cynicism and suspicion. And all external authority is at the very least guilty until proven innocent or at worst is simply rejected out of hand. Personal authority is lauded and applauded. In our cultural story, the answer to the question, who is sovereign over my life, is me. I am. Now clearly, Christian creative minorities reject that answer because we reject the story from whence it comes. We reject the story of radical expressive individualism and we are part of a different story. In our story, the biblical story, the one true God whose name is Yahweh is the ultimate source of all life, of all power, of all authority. And all other claimants to authority, including my own, are no match for Yahweh who has eternal priority. Remember, we used to sing that song, He is Lord, and we still sing variations of that, that He is Lord. You know, the Greek word for Lord is kurios, and it simply means, in its basic form, the one who has ultimate authority. In the, in the Roman Empire of the days of the New Testament, slaves would use that word to address their masters, but they would use it in lower case. When the word was capitalized, it referred to only one person in the whole of the Roman Empire, Caesar of Rome. And when public servants or soldiers met in the streets, they would call to one another, Caesar is Lord, and the response back was, the Lord is Caesar. That declaration, by the way, in that culture was generally uh, accompanied by a gesture of an extended arm, palm down, Caesar is Lord. The Lord is Caesar. You can see obvious similarities between that declaration and that salute uh, with the Nazis who would hold up their hand, extend it, palm down, and say, Hail Hitler. It was derived from the ancient Romans. And you know, it doesn't really matter whether it's Caesar or Hitler or the autonomous self. Sovereignty, all authority is given to somebody. The demands of ancient Rome, or perhaps the more modern National Socialist Party of Germany, or really the, any other tyrannical regime for that matter, that demands total allegiance, always creates immediate difficulties for Christians because of their creedal belief that it is Jesus that is Lord, that it is Jesus who has ultimate authority, and we are committed to another source of authority. Creative minorities that are believers are people under Christ's lordship. And that lordship and that authority is expressed in and revealed through our scriptures. So we speak of the Bible as the final court of appeal and authority. And friends, in a choice between God's revealed will and some governmental dictate, or perhaps even the dictate of our own desires and wishes if we see ourselves as sovereign, when it comes to a clash, for us, God's will and authority prevails. 
and, and we dare not rationalize our wishes into holy causes that carry authority. The question for you and me must always be, what does the Bible say about this? Not what do I feel, not what would I like it to say, but what do the scriptures say on this matter? You know, it's heartbreaking for me to watch that this question, what saith the scriptures, is less and less asked in the church of our time. And it seems in many instances and for many people, we go to the scriptures and we feel the liberty to take what we want and to leave out what we feel offends us or what we don't appreciate. So we treat the scriptures like a smorgasbord event, cherry picking it and choosing what we like and, and ignoring what doesn't suit our palate. And in doing so, we rob and deny the scriptures of their finality and their authority. So we, in our postmoderns, as a resource, resource to use at our discretion. Scott McKnight says, contemporary Christianity has increasingly di displaced the Bible as its foundation for knowing what to think and how to live and, how, and have supplanted it with experience, with desire, and with preference. So <clears throat> even in the church, increasingly, we are a people under our own authority. You know, I was talking to somebody relatively recently, and they were talking to me about a family member, or family members, rather, who had stopped gathering with their faith community. And when this person challenged them about that and what the Scriptures said about that, they simply replied, it doesn't fit with our family circumstances or our life in this season. And in such a case, you know, you, I just shake my head. It's very clear who has to make the adjustment here when our will and God's will collides. And we simply shape the Bible to fit with us and not vice versa. We hear a great deal today about people who choose to believe, for example, the Bible's teaching on sexuality as finding themselves on the wrong side of history. I'm sure you've heard that. Oh, people who believe that are on the wrong side of history. Well, what that means, of course, is most people think this way and you're running in the face of the majority. It's a variation of the old proverb, vox populi, vox deo, which means the voice of God is the voice of the people. Well, of course it isn't. The crowd has never been a reliable guide to what is right and wrong. And Christian creative minorities are creedal communities. And these creeds have been forged and shaped uh, by the church's engagement with the scriptures. You know, Daniel and his friends in Babylon, they'd been carried off into exile. Theologically and diplomatically speaking, their capture and exile meant, in that cultural setting, that their God had been conquered and that the story associated with that God had been overthrown and that the source of authority resident in that God and that story have been fatally undermined. So in exile, they're regarded as having lost their story, lost all authority, and now they are being educated in the wisdom and the language, the story of Babylon. Their identity is being pressured and coerced toward a change of paradigm. The system is trying to make them true Babylonians. And it's clear as the story unfolds that this small creative minority cling tenaciously to an alternate source of authority. They lived even in the midst of Babylon with all its idolatry and seductiveness under the lordship of an, and, and under the ultimate authority of the God of Israel. You know, there's a passage in the book of Daniel that I found incredibly revealing. 
It's in chapter 9, and the first verses of that passage give us an idea of the role that Scripture played in Daniel's life. Now, you've got to understand, Daniel is not a young man here. He was taken to exile as a young man, probably a teenager, maybe of around 16 or 17 years of age. By this time, in chapter 9, he's probably an octogenarian. He's been there seven or eight decades. And in verse one and two of this chapter, or verse two of this chapter, it says, I, Daniel, was meditating on the scriptures that gave, according to the word of God to the prophet Jeremiah, the number of years that Jerusalem had to lie in ruins, namely 70. Here's a man who's been in this dominant, seductive culture for eight decades, and he's still in the scriptures. He's meditating on the scriptures. And down in verse 20, it says, while I was still speaking and praying, confessing my sins and the sins of the people of Israel and presenting my requests before the Lord my God concerning his holy mountain, yes, while I was still praying, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen previously in a vision, was approaching a state of extreme weariness around the time of the evening offering. And as I was reading that, I was thinking, what, what's the evening offering? What, what offering is Daniel speaking of here? Now, it's clear that he's not talking about some Babylonian sacrifice and ritual. It turns out that what this is is a reference to the sacrifices that were made in the temple of Jerusalem, where in Exodus 29, 39, they were instructed, one lamb you shall offer in the morning and another lamb you shall offer in the evening. There were morning and evening sacrifices. And here's Daniel saying, at the time of the evening sacrifice, Gabriel came to me. Now, the extraordinary thing about this is the temple had been destroyed 70 years earlier, and there had not been any since that time. Despite considerable time passing, Daniel's internal reality is not defined by the Babylonian calendar or Babylonian rhythms. The rhythm of God fuels and shapes this man's inner and as a result, his outer life. Daniel doesn't live his life under the dictates of Babylon below, but under the shadow of Jerusalem above. Then, as now, an alternate authority governs God's people. Our internal calendar and rhythms are to be directed from a completely different locality than the dominant culture that we find ourselves surrounded by. Listen, being out of step, being on the wrong side of history, quite probably will be incredibly costly to you. Most creative minorities were rejected, mocked, ridiculed, lampooned, and often worse. Being under a, an alternate authority to the dominant culture in the face of a cultural tidal wave of consensus that has every possibility of sweeping you off the map. In the Clapham Circle that we talked about were mercilessly ridiculed at first. The idea of banning the slave trade was seen as political and economical suicide. And at first, they were tr treated as a complete joke. When they didn't go away, that joke quickly morphed into them being viewed as dangerous radicals who were traitors to king and country. The king and his sons, the princes, and even Lord Nelson, the British war hero, spoke vehemently against the Clapham sect and against Wilberforce. In the face of this, Wilberforce and his friends remained steadfast and labored for fortunes they that consigned the wicked slave trade to the wrong side of history. Can I suggest that you don't be too quick to decide what's the wrong side of history? In the 1930s, a small creative minority within the wider German culture resisted anti-Semitism. They could have been, and probably were at the time, faced with the charge that they were on the wrong side of history. 
And while the German church, by and large, capitulated totally to the demands of the Nazi regime, raising both their voices and their arms in an acknowledgement of Hitler's ultimate authority, a small number of Christians resisted it. They resisted the Aryan principle and paragraph that demanded that churches dismiss all office holders who had Jewish ancestry. And people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Martin Neuermoller and Karl Barth and others determined lay outside and beyond the National Socialist Party and they paid a high price for their alternate allegiance. Some cases it meant geographical exile and of course in Bonhoeffer's case it meant martyrdom. In the 1960s Martin Luther King Jr. was harshly criticized for not remaining on what was seen by the vast majority of American Southerners as the right side of history. And he led a creative minority that ultimately proved to be a redeeming force within the dominant culture. And it didn't happen without considerable criticism and of course in Martin Luther King's life, uh, case, his, uh, his life. In his brilliant essay, Letters from a Birmingham Jail, King brilliantly argued that even if the majority of Southern citizens supported segregation laws, they were nonetheless unjust and should be overthrown. Any law, he said, that uplifts human personality is just. Any law that degrades human personality is unjust. And since segregation degrades and distorts human personality, they are thereby unjust. And like Wilberforce before him, King had to courageously persevere in the face of, at times, violent opposition. Living out of a different story and under an alternate authority to the surrounding dominant cultural life scripts does require courage. It requires integrity. It requires faithfulness. It requires perseverance. And creative minorities are often declared to be on the wrong side of history. Friends, it's time and hindsight that declares what the right side of history is. And time and hindsight often reverses the judgment of cultural consensus. We're not called to be like those who moisten their fingers and hold it up to the wind to see which way it's blowing so that we can decide what direction to head in. And we reject pretty of scripture and, and give way to opinionocracy at our, at our peril. Honestly, when has the herd been a good judge of what's right and what's wrong? We are a people under the authority of the scriptural story. Creative minorities always are, and when they're not, they lose their power to be creative. Let me quickly finish by talking about the second common denominator of creative minorities. They are ethical communities. They practice what they preach in simple they don't just talk good news, they in fact are good news. You know, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, Paul says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That, that, the Greek word that's translated by our English word worthy is an interesting one. It's axios, and it literally means having the same weight as. So our manner of life is supposed to have the same weight as the gospel we profess. And I suspect that perhaps too many professing believers might, might find the same words spoken to them as were spoken to Belshazzar in Daniel chapter 4. You have been weighed in the balances and have found one thing, because they are not the same. What you say you believe and how you live are very, very different. And friends, there is little as disturbing as a group of people who profess one thing and live another. 
Our society, with all of its faults, has little time for hypocrisy. It, it touts authenticity. We want people to be the same on the outside as they are on the inside. There's a, there's a particularly well-known fashion house, I won't mention its name, but uh, over time it has developed a somewhat dubious reputa- reputation with, with regard its business. Its main market is less than modest clothing for teenage girls. It's the ethical fashion report, the overall score of this fashion house was a D plus. It was criticized for having a sweatshop-like conditions for its workers. It's been sued for denying its workers fair pay. It's been sued by workers for having hidden cameras in bathrooms. Some of those images, by the way, made their way to various porn sites. It has been sued more than 50 times for copyright infringements, allegedly stealing designs from other fashion designs. And you say, so what, Don? Probably half the fashion houses in the world do that type of stuff. Well, the problem with this particular fashion house is its founders are well known for their Christian faith. They print John 3.16 on the bottom of their iconic yellow bags. And, I, you know, it's, it's difficult to say. I'm obviously saying this from a distance, and perhaps I shouldn't say it at all, but, but looking on, it seems that one thing doesn't have the weight of another. Something dreadfully is wrong. You compare that, for example, with Daniel. Daniel was so different, so outstanding, that he drew admiration and jealousy and hatred in equal measure. The tall poppy syndrome isn't a recent one. His opponents had to bring him down a peg or two. And so in Daniel chapter six and verse four and five, it says, the vice regents and the governors got together to find some old scandal or skeleton in Daniel's life that they could uh, use against him. I, I wonder how many of us or how many public figures or politicians could stand that fine tooth comb examination. I've often said for the life of me, I can't understand why somebody would run for president or prime minister these days because you know that there's people out there combing through from the time that they went to kindergarten to see if there was some kind of thing that they didn't do well. And lo and behold, any picture, any report, it will be brought up. These guys did exactly that to Daniel. They found absolutely nothing. He was, it says, totally exemplary and trustworthy. They could find no evidence of negligence or misconduct. So they finally gave up and said, Excuse me, we're never going to find anything against this Daniel unless we can cook up something religious. The King James says there was no fault nor error. The word fault has to do with some point of ongoing corruption and decay in his character. The word error has to do with his competence. They were looking to see if he'd been negligent or if there was anything amiss in his practice. With regard both character and competence, there was absolutely nothing they could bring against this man. Daniel and his friends constituted an ethical creative minority. I mean, I I understand how hard that is to live up to. You know, we're all on a journey. Nobody's talking about perfection. But I I want to tell you, when we have ongoing points of decay and corruption that we allow, then ultimately what we allow in the silence will be shouted from the rooftops. And the church has largely lost its voice in our culture because of the failure of its leadership, largely morally. And, and, it doesn't, and, and I'm not just talking the Catholic Church in terms of sexual abuse. In, in the evangelical world, the number of pastors, the number of key leaders who have come crashing down, and every time they come crashing down, the credibility of 
the people of God come crashing down with it. Nobody thinks of the scores, the hundreds, the thousands of faithful leaders that serve all of their lives without failing. They are marred and mired in the same muck of the, of the fallen leaders. We, we've lost our ability to speak because while we seek to be creative minority, for, for in the eyes of many, we are not an ethical community. The early church wasn't perfect. Read the book of Corinthians. But because they lived under a different story and a different authority, they did for, the, for large measure manifest a distinctly countercultural ethic. You know, Pastor Tim Keller aptly describes at least two aspects of this countercultural ethic. He says this, the early church was startlingly different from the culture around it in this way. The pagan culture was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. The pagans gave nobody their money and practically everybody their bodies. The Christians came along and gave practically nobody their bodies and everybody their money. They were stingy with their bodies and promiscuous with their money. It's brilliantly put. Countercultural, an ethical community in the midst of a dominant culture, and they stood out, if I may say it, like feathers on a frog. <laughs> Not a great analogy, but, but hopefully it sticks. <laughs> Reordered hearts, which we claim to have by virtue of what Jesus has done for us, of necessity must start to produce reordered lives. And to fail to be an ethical community is to fail, full stop. Our calling to be a redemptive force in our culture hinges on this point. It hinges on biblical ethics. We cannot confront the idols of our culture if we serve them. I'll finish with this observation. In our present culture, I don't think I'd get too much of an argument if I were to say that the idols that drive our culture could be summed up by um, sex, money, and power. If we as God's people are dominated by those same idolatrous powers, then we have nothing to say to our culture. A creative minority, if we're gonna be a creative minority in our time, then can I suggest in relationship to sex, money, and power, our lives should be, should be characterized by sexual faithfulness, by generosity, by servanthood. And those three words, if embodied in our lives, would make us such a countercultural force that people would stop and go, what on earth is going on with that group of people? Which is exactly what people asked about the early church. Now we can still enjoy the great gift of God that is human sexuality, but we do it within the faithful covenantal framework that is, I know this is on the wrong side of history, but let me say it, heterosexual monogamous marriage. We might be on the wrong side of history, and I tell you I'm not wanting to be belligerent and insensitive to the issues that are presently being raised, but I am unapologetic if we are to be a Christian creative minority. Our lives are fashioned by Scripture, and, and um, we, we cannot simply cherry-pick in the face of cultural consensus. Our question is, what does the Bible say? And I've, and I've read the books that have tried to maneuver and give position to other places, but I'm sorry it doesn't ring true to me. It, it is, I know you have to do your best in terms of biblical interpretation, but having done at least my best and reading the best of other people, 
This is what the Bible says. Secondly, we can enjoy the goodness that God has granted through wealth, but we need to do so in a spirit of stewardship and generosity. Being generous is so countercultural because people are stacking it up, you know, so that they can do their OE, so that they can do their, uh, you know, buy their camper van, so that they can buy the batch, so that they can get the next thing on their bucket list. Being generous might mean that we never actually fulfill a bucket list, but we are stewards of the resources that God has put in our hands, and he asks us to be like him. And I've said this to you before, I'll say it again. God is not interested in raising money, he's really interested in raising kids, and he wants his kids to look just like him, and there is no more generous being in the universe than him. And in our culture that is so centered on my advancement, my resources, my wealth. We are called to be countercultural in terms of sexual ethics, countercultural in terms of our resources, and thirdly, countercultural in terms of the way that we exercise power. People, people can still, believers can still occupy places of influence. Many people in the Clapham sect did. A number of them were, were MPs. But the goal is not to use power and influence to control and manipulate other people and get them to serve our agenda. Rather, we seek to serve other people in the spirit of Christ. I remember hearing a story about a woman in a, a job and she made a terrible mistake, a, job, a, a mistake that would have got someone at her level fired. Well, she told her immediate boss, who then told the superiors, and they came in like a flood because it was incredibly costly, and they said, somebody's head is going to roll. Well, well, it wasn't, the woman, the woman's immediate boss took the blame and said, my call. Because he was so valued, they didn't fire him. He got a severe reprimand, but, but they didn't fire him. And later, this woman came to him and said, Nobody has ever done anything like that for me before. They have always said, oh, it was her pointing, you know, just moving the blame on. She said, what on earth would make you do that for me? And, and, and he was a believer. And he said, well, somebody did that for me. And at the end of the explanation, she said, what church do you go to? So countercultural a leader that actually put his reputation on the line to serve somebody under his authority. Unbelievably countercultural. That's, that's the spirit that we're supposed to operate in and out of. We, are, we aren't about just scrambling up the ladder to secure our own lives and, and future. We are about serving people. And if we are to be a creative minority, remember a thoughtful, small thoughtful group of committed citizens that act as a redeeming force within a dominant culture, if we're gonna be that, then we have to be a people that are under a different authority. We take orders and we have our lives shaped from a completely different source than Babylon. Because Babylon is all about making your way forward. Who cares who you tread on? Just get forward. We're under a different authority, and as a result, our lives are reordered, and we live with different ethics. Someone was just telling me the other day they were having a conversation with somebody, and, and the person said to them, of course, you know, I know you're a believer, but that wouldn't affect the fact that you sleep around, would it? And he said, of course it does. And they were shocked. What? What kind of, you know, 
I mean, you know, this guy's a handsome young man. Why, what, 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 what? Just baffled, absolutely baffled by somebody who would say, no, I don't do that. I'm not going to do that. I live under a different source of authority. Now, initially, they may rubbish you. They may laugh at you. They may mock you. But I want to tell you, I've been at the end of people's journeys where, you know, I've said this before, but I've never had anybody in my office over, you know, 40 years of ministry who have sat down and said to me, you know, I'm so glad that I was promiscuous. It's just, it was just a joy. You know, I, I found such fulfillment in it. I can't begin to tell you the number of people that I've had sat there weeping before me saying, God, I wish somebody had told me this has ruined my life. My life has been ruined by this. Be careful who you consign to the wrong side of history. Just let history work itself out because ultimately, people on the side of Christ's Lordship will be on the right side of history. That's my deep belief because of the story I live in. I hope it's yours as well. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.